Hi, this is Adrian Paul, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hello, this is BT Edney. I played Heather in the original Highlander film, and you are watching Highlander Rewatched. This is Andy Armstrong. I was the second unit director, directing the action units in New York on the original Highlander, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, this is Anthony Bonges, also known as the Gabriel Consoli from the Duende episode of Highlander, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Grayson. I played Amanda on Highland of the Series and the spin-off called Highland of the Raven, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatch. Everybody involved with Highlander has stories, and they're great, great stories. This is John Mosby, the author of Fearful Symmetry, the essential guide to all things Highlander, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Ken Gord, producer of the Highlander series, and you are listening to the podcast Highlander Rewatched. Hey, this is Stan Kirsch. I played Richie Ryan on Highlander, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Clay Boris, director of Highlander, the TV series, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Gillian Horvath. I helped write Highlander Endgame and Highlander, the series, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatch. This is Martin Neufeld. I played Lieutenant John Stan in Highlander 3, The Final Dimension, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, this is Andy Morahan. I'm the director of Highlander 3, The Final Dimension, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, this is F. Bron McCash. I was the Swordmaster fight choreographer for the Highlander television series, series 3, 4, 5, and 6, and the fourth movie, Highlander Endgame. And you are listening to the Highlander Rewatched podcast. Good on ya! Hi, this is Don Alesso. I was script coordinator and associate creator consultant on Highlander the series, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatch. Welcome to the Highlander Rewatch Podcast, and we have a very special Chronicle episode today. We are joined by a very special guest, the script coordinator and script... Super associate, associate creative consultant now you need to learn your i know lines. i need to learn my lines well you wear a lot of hats uh there's a lot of a lot of talking i have to do as adrian would say uh so welcome to the show donna leto hey donna hi good to talk to you yeah associate creative consultant three words for she's not european so we can't tell you what she does oh. <laughs> was that was there like a lot of role disparity between the uh the european crowd and the american crowd well it was Predominantly, you know, a, a Canadian and EU show. There was limited American participation, but since we were fi- uh, not filming, since we were writing in LA, there needed to be some uh, Americans involved. Did you ever like write a USA chant into one of the scripts, <laughs> or um, <Yeah. laughs> did you have some kind of analog in like kind of the Canadian or EU offices? Not really, because all the writing, even when it was done by Canadian writers or European writers, still came through the L.A. office, because that's where David Abramowitz was. Mm. So the heart of the show, as far as I'm concerned, was Los Angeles. So can you tell our listeners exactly, like, what does a script coordinator do? What is that role? <laughs> well, technically, script coordinator takes the drafts of the scripts from the writers and turns them into you know, proper shooting scripts that can actually be filmed. 
and then coordinates the rounds of revisions and the rewrites and makes sure everybody has the correct pages for filming when they're filming. So it's mostly an editorial and kind of copy editing gig. And on a network show, there'd be a script coordinator, a bunch of writer's assistants, a production coordinator, a showrunner's assistant, and that's just in the story department. But Highlander was a very shoestring budget show. So I was all of that. <laughs> other duties as assigned, that was my job. And that was most of, most of your day was other duties as assigned? Pretty much, pretty much. I, I became known uh, around the office as the hard drive. <laughs> I was the next through which the communications were flowing. I knew the canon. I knew the timeline. You know, today's script coordinator has a specific meaning. That's not actually what I was doing. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. I mean, I was doing that, but a lot more. Right. Totally. Yeah. So what was the difference between that then and associate creative consultant? What was your role in that respect? Well, over time, even as script coordinator, I was watching dailies and I was starting to weigh in on the cuts coming down from post and looking at casting tapes and I would write occasional dialogue for uh, post-production recording and even wrote a scene or two. But the associate creative consultant, I mean, that title comes because David Abramowitz was the creative consultant, two words meaning showrunner, showrunner who's not Canadian or European. So I guess the best analog would be story editor. You know, I would help create the stories, uh, write the outlines. The outlines would then go out to Canadian or European writers. Their draft of the script would come back to the office. And then as a group, you know, the group being David, me, this being season six, um, James Thorpe. And sometimes Dave Tynan, although Tynan spent most of his time in Canada, we would give notes on the script and then one of us would do a rewrite. Well, this is something I've always wondered was like, where did the story ideas come from? So are you saying that like in L.A. you would kind of come up with the idea for a story and then it would just be given to a writer to let them do what they wanted with? Well, not not what they wanted with it. The way the story (laughs) process would work, most of the time uh, the ideas were generated in our writing room. Sometimes freelance writers would come in and pitch some ideas, and occasionally we would okay one of those. Like, for example, the first time James Thorpe came in as a freelance writer, one of the first things he pitched was Valkyrie, which we were like, that's brilliant. Let's use that. But a lot of times... It came out of our little group of writers in the writer's room, and someone on the writing staff would put together what was called an area, which was just a brief couple of paragraphs to show to Bill, for Bill to go, that sounds really good, or that really sucks. (laughs) And for our listeners, that's that's Bill Panzer, right? Bill Panzer. Bill Panzer, yes. And if Bill gave it a thumbs up, then we would move to outline. The outline is a non-dialogue version of what the episode would look like. So, like, each scene would have a paragraph saying what happened in that scene. And there'd be a lot of revisions on that and a lot of the input on that coming from the writer's room and then coming from Bill Panzer. And then when Bill was okay with it, it would usually go to Reicher and Gaumont and see if there was any uh, notes coming from them. When the outline was okayed, then it would be given to a writer, generally a freelancer, because we had such a small writing staff, and always Canadian or EU. Once they finished writing the script based on the outline, that they were given. The script would come back. Sometimes we'd give the notes back to that writer if they were a particularly good writer and let them do the rewrite. But a lot of times the rewrite would be done in-house. That sounds like a lot of back and forth. How long generally is this process take? Uh, or, or is there an average? You couldn't really email this, right? 
we could. There, oh. there was there was email then. We would send the finished scripts to France and to Canada via FTP because you couldn't really email a file that size. I'm not sure you could email a file at all back then. But <laughs> you couldn't. You certainly couldn't do one that size. So we would actually have to put it on a dedicated computer that was running FTP, and then France would call in in the middle of the night and pick it up. And sometimes if something had happened, like there had been a storm or something, or something had reset the FTP software on our side, I would get a call at 3 in the morning from this voice in Paris going, Donna, Donna, help us! (laughs) And I would run back to the office and reset the FTP um, so they could download the Wow. Yeah. I hope that didn't happen a lot. <laughs> no, no. Luckily, luckily it didn't. Throughout all these kind of revision processes and things like that, is there one or any other or more episodes that like really stick out to you as like this got the, the Donaletto treatment, like your fingerprints are all over it? Well, the first show I feel like I really contributed to was Take Back the Night. Oh, that's, because... a, that's a favorite of ours. Also, we love saying the name in a Batman voice. <laughs> Which we yep. do frequently. <laughs> I was going to say you thought Kierdwin was hot, but okay. Yeah. Oh, well, that is also true, that, but <laughs> take back the night. Before I moved to L.A. to work on Highlander, my main hobby was I was a historical reenactor. Oh, cool. And one of the periods that I specialized in was Roman Celtic Britain. So I wasn't actually in the writer's room for Take Back the Night. But all of a sudden, David and Gillian come out of the room. They come over to my desk and they're like, okay. Tell us about Celtic women warriors. <laughs> you, know, you know, the kind of question you field every day. Exactly, exactly. So I kind of feel like Kierdwin was my baby. And then when the time came to actually do the rewrite on the script, they had added the Celtic scenes, and I think they had changed the Scottish scene. I, I don't remember the exact changes, but I was able to write the Celtic scenes. So those are the those are the first actual scenes that I contributed in Highland. That's awesome. Um, Did you include, like, aspects from your reenactments? in those scenes? The names. Yeah, the Kierdwin's friends who all die tragically, of course, because, you know, Roman. We're all named after the names of characters from our historical reenactments. Oh, that's fun. So it's like the next time you go see that crew, you're like, hey, (laughs) left you a little Easter egg. Yep. You were murdered on the battlefield (laughs) or in your village. Exactly. Yeah, I got got some emails. Of course, I also got some emails going, well, I don't know, you know, the costumes. I'm like, not in charge of that. Also, thank you for finally setting, settling for, for us, for good and true, how to say that character's name, because Keith Uh-oh. here has a, has a lot of trouble saying that name. Oh, no. <laughs> I could have sworn that Adrian Paul says Sidwin a couple times in he, the episode. I mean, he might. He frankly. might. <laughs> Maybe he yeah. says it wrong. <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of like for many years, uh, the, the queen of the Kenny tribe, Boudicca, oh, yeah. was called by the Victorians, Bodicea. And then, of course, there's the whole Celtic-Celtic thing. Yeah, that's baffling to me. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Boston yeah, but Celtics. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> but we had a uh, part-time researcher on the show who was also a good friend of mine from ages ago. She was in L.A. working on her Ph.D. as an archaeologist, and her specialty was the Roman Empire. Oh, did you have a friendly um, rivalry as a result? Well, no, you're, no. You're on Team no. Celts. She's on Team Roman Empire. <laughs> But no, I, I think she's actually Celt heavy too. But uh, <laughs> but anyhow, so she she's the one who confirmed the hard seat 
would be the way to go on that. And as a matter of fact, she appears in Zealot, and she's on the Watcher Chronicles. Dr. Amy Zoll, she was Constantine's Watcher against Romans. But we wanted to ask you about the Watcher Chronicles. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, is it true that you wrote the the bulk of them? I wrote everything. Everything. So tell us about, like, how that, like, because it's like a daunting task. Like, it's a lot of info and fun little, like, stories and letters and all this stuff. Like, what was the process to create them? How did they even come about in the first place? Like, who decided, like, we should actually make this a thing? Well, of course, it originally shows up in finale. And in the script of finale, all it really says is that, you know, pictures and histories of the immortals show up on this computer screen. Although it gives some more detailed information about Braden Hammer, who was our demo immortal. One of our so favorite when, names, by the way. Yes. Yeah. So when the episode got to post-production, we got this call, and I don't remember whether it's John Finesse or Tracy Hillman, but somebody called down and said, so what do these screens look like? And we were like, oh. <laughs> and so other duties as a sign, I wrote the screens for the episode. So after the episode aired, I had an active online presence back then. It was, what, all TV Highlander, I think. Mm-hmm. And I was contacted by these two women who were Highlander fans, but also had a company that made similar products. Whoa. And said, you know, we can make this happen. When you say similar products, is that like interactive CD-ROMs or like what's the... Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know if it was like, um, you know, Encyclopedia, you know. Right. I mean, they weren't Microsoft, so it wasn't Encarta. But, you know, this was the mid-90s, so I don't know how high-tech these things were to today standards, but they did stuff like this. So I put them in touch with Davis Panzer, who gave it the big thumbs up, and I started writing. Now, this was the end of season three, so there was a lot less stuff then. (laughs) But it really was a lot of charts and spreadsheets and watching the episodes obsessively. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it is really Um, like a lot of work to track all of this stuff. You know, it was a lot of fun designing you know, the watchers and figuring out what their personalities were and what they'd sit around bitching about, you know, just trying to give them life. And then watching the episode, trying to see if there was somebody in the background we could pull out right. <laughs> to make the watcher. Oh, this, um, this or, extra that makes eye contact with the camera. There he is. That's the watcher. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, if somebody happened to be caught in the, in the still photography who might not even have been that noticeable in the episode, but I'm like, who's this lady in the brown dress? Sold. <laughs> and then there were a couple of times where we had nothing, and luckily I have friends who are reenactors. Cool. <laughs> so then after the series was over, then um, a different company took over the job, and, and we did the whole rest of the series. And then when it came time for the DVDs, then they came back to me and asked me if I'd also do Raven, which was tricky because... I hadn't watched it. (laughs) (laughs) I actually think I had, you know, watched them once when they aired, but I certainly didn't have the the depth of knowledge that I had for Highland of the series, so they sent me the DVDs, and I got myself up to speed. Uh, Did you find that the writers then retroactively used your Watcher Chronicles to help, like, construct stories or figure out timelines or anything? I designed the whole Watcher bureaucracy. I had done it for the Chronicles, and then when they were writing Judgment Day and having the the trial you know with the with the watcher hierarchy there mm-hmm. they were all my guys you know i i had separated the world into regions and regional coordinators and local coordinators and all of that and that just became the way the watchers worked so i was a little pleased with that <laughs> can you then answer this question that we're always wondering which is 
what is Joe's job? Is he like just <laughs> Duncan's watcher? Is he like one of these regional supervisors? He seems like he's a fancy guy. You know, he wasn't one of the big regional coordinators. Those were the snooty guys who had him on trial. Sure. But he was a district coordinator for the ah. Pacific Northwest. Ah. Oh, snap. <laughs> now, when we first met Horton, that was Horton's job. Ah, okay. So it's like you kill Horton your boss and take the... their job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. pretty much. <laughs> that's the Watcher version of the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the version of the Watchers where, you know, they, they all have mustaches and they're very neat. More <laughs> Star Trek references. <laughs> Keep them coming. We've got a large appetite for... Uh, okay. For these well, I figured I was, I was with the right group. Yeah. <laughs> you also mentioned that Bill Panzer, you know, had, like, approval, like, story approval. Like, uh, yay or nay to either any of these things. Uh, were there any stories you remember him just being like... Oh, hell no. Like, we're not doing that at all. That were either, like, pretty good or maybe terrible, too. (laughs) I don't remember any specifics with Bill. I remember a couple with David. And with David, it was usually they were dark. And the way he phrased it was he didn't want to put his soul there. Oh, interesting. Because you live with these stories for months, you know, nurturing them from just a pitch into the finish, outlines and then scripts and then cuts. The episode that eventually became Black Tower, not one of my favorites, but actually came from a pitch of mine where I wanted to do uh, Duncan's first student that he'd really screwed up and that the student had gone on to become a serial killer. Ooh. Yeah, dark. Yeah, right. <laughs> just, just a little, just a little dark. And that was one where, where David was like, I just, I don't want to be there. There are some very dark Highlander episodes. <laughs> so I'm surprised that there were some that were just like too dark. <laughs> too dark. Like, at what point, evil Duncan, like, almost murders a man and then seduces his wife like right that's like but like but he's, something but he's redeemed that's right. true sure. yeah. then there's the the <laughs> darkest of all highlander episodes the darkness that's right. <laughs> yeah just in terms of literal yeah and in terms right of how dark title. it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fascinating that was me. you know i told you about one of the first scenes i ever wrote gillian horvath was script coordinator before me she was script coordinator in in season two and the first scene she wrote was the scene of duncan and tessa lying on the bed talking about the future which is like one of my favorite scenes that is sweet yeah. though yeah <laughs> and there's no serial killing involved so sure. that's no no none whatsoever that's a, that's a big plus. We, we made an actor really really happy you know when we called him three years later and said okay you know that day you worked and you killed one of our right. main characters <laughs> We need you back. Yeah, yeah, pretty sure. please. <laughs> and he features a lot in that episode and gets to be hung yeah. off a fire escape. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That is yeah. Kind of <laughs> so you never turn down day player work. You, don't yeah. Yeah. you never know. Down. Well, the other one like that is our good friend Mike the Paramedic. Was that season four? Oh. He was in almost every episode Anne was in. That's right. right. He's yeah. always just hanging around like, who is this guy? Yeah. Mike the paramedic, so, you know, when it came time to endanger Anne in the collapsing subway, we're like, somebody has to die and it can't be Anne. <laughs> right? Oh. Where's Mike the paramedic? <laughs> That's great, yeah. And he kind of looked like Duncan a little bit. Didn't he have a ponytail? Yeah, he did have a ponytail. yeah that was yeah. a little creepy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we used to speculate that that was the father of Anne's baby, but that was just a joke. Oh, that's oh, right. You wrote we, that in the Watcher yeah. Chronicles and blew yeah. our minds when we read it. We were like, oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. She's got a type. Yeah, yeah. she does. Right. <laughs> 
They called it the Blitz. So you also wrote some of the the Highlander like extended universe, the novels. One you wrote yeah. was Zealot. Can you tell us about how that all came about? How you got involved? Gillian and I oversaw the whole novel series for Davis Panther, and so we helped select the writers and the stories. And then when the stories were written, when the novels were written, we actually edited them the same way that we edited scripts. Oh, wow. You know, we made sure that, you know, it was canon, first of all. And then does the story work? Because Highlander's name is on this. Sure. You know, does the story work? And most importantly, do our characters sound and act like our characters sound and act. So I was really familiar with the process. I had done some writing when I was younger. A little backstory. Gillian and I met at 2 in the morning on a shuttle bus at the World Science Fiction Convention in 1983. Oh, wow. Whoa, that's just great. Um, and also, never Doc- happened on a bus at 3 in the morning. But- <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's creepy, but it's true. And actually, Dr. Amy, the archaeologist, was with us, too. We met because I was wearing a Styx concert t-shirt. Nice. And I was wearing a Styx concert t-shirt because that was the year that Styx released their concept album, Kilroy Was Here. Wow. Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto, that one. Right. I was obsessed with it because it's a science fiction story sure yeah somebody's disagreeing is that what i hear oh, oh no, no. no no that was actually that was keith getting a text keith getting message. i got email. a te- yeah sorry <laughs> oh okay i i thought that was just a you know sound of disapproval but oh, but, no. um, but for discussion purposes mm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh no i'm all want. on board sticks i love sticks so i'm all on board and sticks i'm Half on board, Kilroy. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I was upset. <laughs> and that's how we met. Um, and we started talking at, you know, two in the morning on the bus about six. And it's now 36 years later, and we're still all really dear friends. And Gillian and I wrote, Kilroy was here, fanfic. That's awesome. Yes, I said it. We wrote <laughs> fanfic. <laughs> So we actually wrote an entire novel throughout the fanfic. Wow. So That's awesome. Yeah. Do you still have it? Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually, actually, it's probably in a box in a closet in Los Angeles because there was stuff that I left. I really thought I was going back to L.A. in a couple of years. All my vinyl was back there. My cool concert T-shirts, most of them are back there. <laughs> Oh, man, that's gold. You got to get that stuff. Yeah, luckily, all my, none of my friends have ever moved. So <laughs> it's probably back there somewhere. But anyhow, so I had had writing experience, and we were really good editors for each other. So I decided I'd had this idea since The Revolutionary. That's the one with Caros, you know, who had fought with Spartacus and then fought with Duncan in, in Mexico. So I've been playing around with the idea of this mortal who had been fighting for the same piece of land or the same people for thousands of years. So I pitched the character of Mordecai uh, to Betsy Mitchell, who was the editor of the series at Warner Aspect Books. And she really liked it, but I didn't have a track record because I wasn't going to let her read my story with your fanfic. So, um, so I had to write the first three chapters of the book in a detailed outline, and I sent that off to her, and I got the contract. So, And then I had to learn how to write a novel uh, to a deadline, which was Ugh. tricky since I was also <laughs> making a television show at the same time. Ooh. That sounds like my worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. yeah so which, which show at this point and uh is it still highlander going at this point this was still highlander okay and then how how much time did you have to put this whole novel together probably about a year i mean it sounds like a lot 
but there was a whole lot of research involved. You know, I had never been to Warsaw. I had never been to Paris. I didn't really know much about the Holocaust. So there was there was a lot of research that had to be done even before um, I started writing the novel. And this is pre-Wikipedia, but, I guess. So uh... Microsoft and Carta. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's something that always impresses me about the show. It's like there's a lot of historical details or characters. Like uh, I don't know, one of our favorite episodes was like The Wrath of Kali, which has mm-hmm. like all mm-hmm. sorts of Indian mythology built into it, all this sort of cool stuff. And it always astounds me like this stuff isn't necessarily like at your fingertips on a keyboard. Like there's like real research that has to go into this that's yep. more difficult than it would be today, which is always impressive. I think. Yeah. I mean, there were libraries involved. <laughs> certainly. My first or second day at work at Highlander. So brand new, never worked in television before. You know, this is all new to me. And David asks me to find out what the ritual is for someone visiting a Shinto grave. Cool. Wow. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, and it's 1994. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I called the Japanese consulate oh. in Los Angeles, and they put me on to someone who could answer the question. Now, luckily, it was a very simple answer, which is was some clapping and some head bowing so that wasn't bad but you know but that's that's how you kind of how you had to do it back then is right. just start reaching reaching out to people and i am an introvert so cold calling is not my strong suit but you do it when you have to do it you're like a, like a pre- private private eye almost yeah <laughs> yeah I, I preferred having to go to the library, but that's why it was actually really useful when Dr. Amy came out to L.A. to work on her on her Ph.D. and agreed to work with us because research was what she did. Going back to the Watcher Chronicles for a minute, mm-hmm. um, are you a fan of the Chris Claremont X-Men comics? Absolutely. Okay, because I, I picked up on some names and I was like, is this an X-Men reference? Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which he's my favorite X-Men writer and that's my favorite yeah. kind of X-Men story then, arc so then you'll appreciate this so dragon con i went to dragon con in i don't know 96 maybe probably when we were hauling around the trailer for highlander 3 which was a really kick-ass trailer oh that's right because you, you and gillian were like promoting the movie right yeah yes. yeah which was funny because we didn't actually work for davis panzer or Miramax. <laughs> we just thought it was a cool trailer <laughs> um so we were we were at dragon con and Betsy mitchell who was editing the highlander novels set up a lunch with us and we went and chris claremont was there oh my gosh that's awesome he was a huge fan of the show that's great you know i'm a little puddled on the floor because i was a huge x-men fan yeah and here he is complimenting the work that we were doing. That's so awesome. Like, because he's such a prolific writer and created most of everyone's favorite X-Men arcs and characters, along with the artists that he worked with. That's amazing. For people at well, home that... who might not know some of what they did, can you give like a quick oh, so teaser like, for people at home? The Dark Phoenix saga, that's probably his... Recently made into a movie. Right, most well Right, Days of Future Past. Yeah, Days of Future Past. Also recently made it to a movie. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's why I'm bringing it up. I'm like, they might have seen that. Yeah. Um, right. My favorite is the graphic novel, God Loves, Man Kills, which is basically Days of Future Past, I think. Yeah. They're actually, Chris Claremont's actually in Days of Future Past. Oh, he's in the movie? He, yes. Um, there's a scene where there's a bunch of senators at a hearing. He's one of the senators. Oh, oh nice. cool. That's awesome. And next at least they didn't make Len him an Wien. aide. Yeah, and next to him is Lynn Wein who invented Wolverine. Right, right, who unfortunately... And Len was a friend of mine. Oh, that's... passed away recently, yeah. yeah. Len was a friend of mine. We met 
at a Comic-Con back in the days when there were only 60,000 of my close personal friends there and not 120,000 <laughs> close personal friends. And he came up to me and Gillian and said, please tell me Joe's not dead. You can figure out when this was, right? Yeah, so it's the, the season closer. <laughs> yeah, except it wasn't supposed to be. It was moved to yeah. the start of because, season five. Right? Because we were getting a truncated season five. We were only getting 18. For season five, Reicher decided to move two season four episodes over to season five so that there would be two 20-episode seasons instead of a 22 and an 18. So they chose to make Judgment Day a cliffhanger and make everybody wait all summer to see if Joe lived and then do One Minute to Midnight where, you know, uh, that was never the intention. Did you tell Mr. Ween, did you spoil the fate of Joe? Yes, yes, we did. (laughs) Oh, you did? Oh, man, he must have, he was on the inside track. Well, you put yeah. you put his mind at ease, probably. You know, it's like he's Wolverine's dad. Whatever he wants, he can have. Yeah. <laughs> Would you mind talking to us a little bit about the planned Highlander book Barricades that I guess didn't didn't get released? Am I correct in that? Barricades didn't get finished, unfortunately. Little backstory: so Barricades wasn't actually what I originally wanted to do as my second book. I wanted to do Darius at the Gates of Paris. Oh, that would be awesome! That, I mean, that would have I, been a quite the uh, feast for Highlander fans. Yeah, and you know, I had I had it all plotted out, and you know, there was even a Kirtland appearance and all this stuff. But I had gone home uh, to Baltimore from LA, and while while I was home on a visit, I had to have emergency surgery. And so I was in Baltimore for weeks recuperating because I couldn't fly. Uh, and when I got back to L.A., Rebecca Neeson had pitched that idea and had gotten a contract. What? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, person. But I knew I wanted to work with Darius. I mean, the whole point of the book is to, of a book is to be able to do something, or Italian book, is to be able to do something you can't do on the screen. And for Zealot, that was like Masada. We're not doing that on Highlander Budget. Mm-hmm. So for my second book, I wanted to, to use Darius. So the idea behind Barricades is that the quote-unquote present-day story is actually 1968. Oh. And then the flashbacks before then were 1843, uh, and 1944, which all of those are times when the people of Paris were manning barricades near Darius's church. And one of those people, of course, would be Duncan MacLeod. Of the clan MacLeod? <laughs> no, no. The... Of, the, of the clan MacLeod. Oh, no, the other one. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> I love so that I wrote, it's like a story wrote, structure. That's great. So I wrote four chapters. Um, most of them are uh, the World War II flashbacks. But then I developed some health issues that sort of came out of that surgery that I had had previously. And I just, I couldn't meet the deadline. You know, my brain was not working as fast as it should. And I just, it it was impossible for me to finish by the deadline. So I had to give up the contract. They actually, Betsy gave the contract to someone else someone who apparently, I guess, could write really fast. But then that book was never published, and I don't know why. So somewhere out there is an Amanda book that no one's ever seen. That's cool. That's like a Holy Grail item. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Amanda can do a heist to try to find that script. (laughs) So I I regret it because I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed working with Duncan during the 60s, and just I adored Darius. Because to me, of course, Darius is Dave Bromowitz. Right, definitely. (laughs) Now I'm just picturing him in a monk's robe at all times. (laughs) (laughs) Well... You know that exists. Oh, that's right. In uh, Song of the Executioner. Song of the Executioner. That's right. He's got a little cameo pouring some wine. Yep. That's right. Yep. (laughs) 
So, Donna, one of the other things that we've heard that you had part in writing was the Highlander catalog. Is this true? I have to tell you, I don't remember writing descriptions of the items. I may have, because I did do a lot of stuff for those guys, but I don't have any stories about that. Oh, okay. Um, uh, just go, just out of curiosity, yeah. do you have a favorite piece of Highlander merchandise, though? Yes. Um, <laughs> I really like the Travels of Duncan McLeod map, which was something that was available very early on because it was done after season three and it was designed by uh actually my housemate jen who was an artist oh cool so she put the the ancient map together for us and you know did the lettering and and all of that but as i say it only went through season three i really wish we had been able to do like the watcher chronicles go back after the show was over and put in the rest of the flashbacks. But that also helped us really figure out Duncan's timeline. And after season three, we were able to say, okay, so here's the group of time where he was in the Americas. Here's a whole bunch of time here uh, that we don't have anything. Maybe this is when we send him to Asia. You right. know, things like that started to come out of that project. Yeah, because that had to be tough to, especially if you're taking into account travel time and all this right. stuff. Right, you just get it's on like, an airplane. Yeah. Well, you know, it's TV time. So <laughs> <laughs> if, he, if he needed to be there, he would have been there. <laughs> you know, kind of like uh, how frustrating it was to live in Los Angeles and watch 24. It's like oh, you no. can't get across town in less than 12 hours. <laughs> you can't get there in 20 minutes. I'm sorry. So you have a favorite piece of merchandise. Do you, do you have a personal favorite chronicle that you've written? This kind of goes back to Dr. Amy again. I really like the series that I did of watcher researchers who figure out that their own Adam Pearson is an immortal. Uh. And then later on figure out, holy crap, and he's Mythos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see how that'd be fun to like put those... Bread, have like right people putting those breadcrumbs together and mm-hmm. <laughs> actually some of our favorite watcher chronicles is when one is written by adam pearson yeah those are always clever yeah. we think those are really funny because it's like oh look at this he's lying to cover his own tail this is good yeah especially the uh the false mythos episode with ron perlman yeah oh right that well, chronicle we found him. yeah amazing. we found him <laughs> and uh, the false mythos was based on sort of the prototype mythos because when we first started, and when I, when I say we, I was in the office, but this was really more of a David Gillian, and I think Tynan was there, um, discussion of the world's oldest mortal. And in the very beginning, he was kind of what you thought he might be. He was, you know, John Reese davy for example. I right. mean, he was older, wiser, bearded, exactly where that came from. And then they decided to flip it on its head and make it, you know, this cool young dude. So when it came time to have a false Misa, it was going to be the older, wiser, bearded guy. The iconic wise the man voice of Ron Perlman. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, that's not the first time they tried to get Ron Perlman. Oh, really? Yeah. They actually uh, tried to get him for the innocent. Really? In what role? As Mikey. Oh, wow. That would have been such a different episode, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Pruitt Taylor Vince was great, but yeah. Yeah, I love Pruitt Taylor Vince. And, you know, we had the ability to say, what was the Emmy Award winning Pruitt Taylor Vince? Yeah. I think think at that point. So so that was nice. We didn't get a lot of Emmy Award winners. (laughs) (laughs) So after Highlander, you got involved in MythQuest, which also involved a good friend of ours, uh, Maury Ravinsky. Can you tell us about that? Maury Ravinsky. 
Well, Maury called me out of the blue one day and said, uh, I'm doing this thing. Would you be interested? And and I was working a corporate job. I was making training films for the banking industry. So I was like, hell yeah, get me out of here. Right, right, right. <laughs> Especially because here was what was dangled in front of me. It was going to film in Prague. Fun. And the writing staff would be in Prague. I mean, I was I was all for it. I yeah, got sure. my Czech language tapes out. I was good to go. You know, and then the reality of television hit. And <laughs> you know where we ended up filming it, right? Vancouver? Or Saskatchewan? No. Regina, Saskatchewan. <laughs> oh, boy. The Canadian partner was headed up by a guy from Regina. He had once been the mascot for the Regina Rough Riders. Wow. That's a rough name. <laughs> is the Canadian, the Canadian rules football team. So he was wedded to Regina, and he wanted to show that it was possible to make network quality television in the middle of a thousand miles of wheat. Wow. <laughs> you know, and, and he would have gotten away with it, too, if it hadn't been for the coldest winter in 122 years. The cameras froze. Wow. <laughs> Whoops. And they could have had yeah. Wenceslas Square, and they went for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when we came when we came back after Christmas, we went to Calgary, which was a little warmer and actually had a film studio. We had been filming in an old agricultural college in Regina, but it was fun. It was like going off to college. Bunch of people I really liked. Only in Regina. Yeah. <laughs> so there's been a lot of talk about like Highlander reboots. They're talking TV show, maybe a movie. We were kind of curious, like if you had to do it again and start it all over, like what would the Donaletto version of Highlander look like? Since you've already outed me as an X-Men fan, what I had always wanted to do with the Immortals was out them. I wanted the world to know that Immortals existed. We had so many conversations, uh, you know, in the different permutations of season six, when it was going to be all all Aramon, and then it was going to be all spin-off chicks, and it was going to be all this and all that, um, is that, you know, every every conversation I would finish someone's sentence with, and then we out the Immortals. <laughs> because what I would like to see is what they used to call in the business, and I don't know if they still do, a traveling angel show. Think of The Incredible Hulk. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, touched by an angel, yeah, that was right. kind of on the nose. But, you know, where you have this loner character, Route 66, kind of the same way, except there's two of them, you know, who goes from town to town helping people, but always looking over his shoulder, you know, hoping he doesn't get found out. And I thought that would be an interesting take on the whole immortality thing. So the game is still going on. Immortals are still hunting each other, but the mortals are also... You know, there there are people who want to help the the immortals. There are people who want to kill the immortals. That does have Again, a very kind of, like X Men vibe. Like yeah, I can totally. literally very, just picture someone being very like, God a registry of these people. Mm -hmm. Yes, very very God loves man kills. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Chris Claremont wants his nickel. Yeah. <laughs> so just a couple more questions for you, Donna. We were mm -hmm. curious, like, are there any, like, stories you remember from your times at Highlander, like, that you've either never told or just, like, crazy, wacky things, best day on set, like, worst day on set, like, things that were just a disaster, like, anything you want to tell that, you know, maybe hasn't been told before? The story, actually, I think of, I was in Vancouver for comes a horseman uh, because I was up there for the rap party and I think the last day of filming was the western was the flashback mm. so I'm with Gillian Gillian I check into the hotel where the cast stays 
And we went down to the bar that night. And the bar of that hotel is like an old English manor, you know, big leather chairs and wood paneling and all of that. And in a big leather chair by the fire is this smallish guy looking very tweedy, like professorial. And we were like, that's the guy who's playing Kronos. Ah. <laughs> Which, you know, because we had seen his picture for casting. So we went over and we were talking to him and he was all excited because he'd always wanted to do a Western. You know, we were like, so American boys grow up wanting to be knights and British boys grow up wanting to be cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> so the next day we're on set and, you know, Melvin Corrin makes his entrance and we're like, this guy is a foot taller and six inches wider. How does he do that? And he's scary. And the guy we met the night before was far from scary. He was like one of the nicest guys I'd ever met. Meanwhile, back in L.A., Dr. Amy had been watching the dailies. She was manning the fort because we were all up there watching the dailies as they came in. And apparently she had just gotten the daily for the Jimmy scene. And she's watching it and suddenly Kronos came on and she fell off her chair she was so scared Aww. and we were and, and we were like but but she's so nice <laughs> well, he had to, he so, got I mean, into that, that melvin character and that really that grounds him yeah. with the name melvin you know he he takes nebbishy names wherever he goes so that people will pick fights with him <laughs> right. that that was our theory <laughs> finally donna i i yeah. would be remiss if i didn't ask so you work in accessibility now and i feel like that's like an important field and i actually have a friend here in philadelphia who does similar technology work with accessibility could you tell our listeners like what accessibility is and why it's so important well First, at the, at the last Highlander convention, Peter Wingfield and I were like, I wonder which one of us has strayed furthest from Highlander. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, at least he had almost been a doctor before, before Highlander. But accessibility is making sure that information and content and interactions that you can do on the computer are available to everyone, whether someone is blind or deaf or can't use a mouse or is old, you know, and has arthritis or whatever, everybody should be able to have the same interactions as everyone else. I mean, it's universal design. It's it's inclusion. It's making the world accessible to everyone. And I have an overdeveloped sense of fair play, which is how I got passionate about this subject. So what I do is I make sure that websites and PDFs and Word documents and, and those kind of things are usable by everyone because that's how the world does business these days. That's how the world does social these days. And I don't want anybody left out. That's awesome. It's a noble cause. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Donna, for speaking with us today. This was a real treat. Be sure, everybody, to go back into your Watcher Chronicles and just relive the adventures that Donna brought to us. And uh, just thank you so much for joining us today. And also go oh, in, I had a great time. Also go in and look for those hidden X-Men Easter eggs. I know, right? I'm going to be, like, <laughs> looking right. all over them now. So we've been your rewatchers. This is Eamon. This is Kyle. This is Keith. And we're joined by... Don Electro. <laughs> all yeah. right. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.